Our scripture today is found in Revelation, and I'm just going to read chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay, I think I'm back on. Yes, very much so. Uh, Isn't that an amazing passage just by itself without any explanation or elaboration? Uh, I hope it already is starting to cause your hearts to want to worship and to know Jesus more. In uh, one of the opening scenes to Shakespeare's Henry IV, Part One, I couldn't resist another Shakespeare reference. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've only got four or five weeks left, so I've got to get as many as, in as I can, so expect many more. In it, um, I, I don't know if you guys have read this one or not, but we're introduced to Prince Hal, and he is King Henry IV's son, but he's not acting very much like a prince. He's not acting very much like a king should act. And, and, you know, you may expect a king or a prince to hang out in castles. This king, this prince, is hanging out in bars. You may expect a king to kind of consult with his father's elders and rulers and advisors. This one is consorting with ruffians and thieves and villains um, in these bars. And they're having a pretty good time. He's hanging out with the most notoriously fat villain of all, Falstaff. For those of you guys who have read this play, one of Shakespeare's most famous characters, what these guys love to do is they love to um, 
chase barmaids around. They love to drink. They love to steal. They love to do anything that they can to have a good time. And um, in fact, what Prince Hal does is he hatches a plot. This shows kind of how immature he is. He hatches a plot both to steal money from his father's treasury and to make a fool of Falstaff at the exact same time. And so what, they, what he does is he tricks Falstaff into robbing the king's men. And then Hal, Prince Hal, and one other guy scare Falstaff half to death and take the money from him. And then they all meet back in a bar and they ask Falstaff, hey, what happened? And if you've read this, it's a hilarious scene because Falstaff starts by saying, there were like six guys who totally took us down. And by the, by the time you're at the end of the story, he's at about 400 armed men. <laughs> and all it was was Prince Hal um, ripping the money off of him. And they get a big laugh out of it and then finally show him the money. But um, what is shocking about all of this is that anybody in Shakespeare's era, anybody in Renaissance England would have known that Prince Hal, Henry IV's son, would become Henry V. And Henry V is one of the greatest kings that England has ever known. He's the one that unites the empire, conquers the French, um, and then really unfortunately sort of dies right after. But he is the one who um, legends and stories are told about. But in this point in his life, something's not right. He's not acting like the person that he actually is. He's not acting like the king he is going to once be. He has no concern for authority. He has no concern for the people, no love for the people. All he's concerned about is himself having a good time and making himself happy. And um, I think in a similar way, in a similar way, all of you guys, whether individually or corporately, are tempted to find yourselves not acting like the people that you were created to be, not acting like the people you were designed to be, not acting like the people you were called to be. And this applies whether you are a Christian or whether you're not a Christian. God has created you in his image. He has created you to worship him and to know him and to relate to him and to love him. But sometimes we forget that. We forget the fact that we have been created to know God and we find ourselves finding our identity and we find ourselves finding our worth in all sorts of other things, in relationships, in our work, in our hobbies and all sorts of other things like that. But here's where, that's where Revelation comes in. Here's what, here's what happens in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And this is one of the reasons I chose this passage when I preached a couple weeks ago. It's one of the reasons I'm really glad I get the chance to preach on it today. It's um, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. And this is why in Revelation 4 and 5, John is taken up into the heavenly throne room. And sometimes we think of Revelation as futuristic prophecy. But what's happening here is you are getting an eternal throne room perspective on all of history. Um, and in his book, uh, I think it's called The Returning King, a guy named Vern Poitras, he compares this to entering into God's divine control tower. Okay, so if you're going to go to the Philadelphia airport and you're kind of just walking around, everything looks chaotic, doesn't it? Highly chaotic. There's planes taking off, there's planes landing, there's people wandering around, there's trucks moving out and forth, and you can't get a sense of why things are happening the way they are. But if you enter into the control tower, the control room, you go up above and you can see over things what's happening, suddenly everything makes sense. The chaotic, uh, frustrating, seemingly meaningless events suddenly make sense. You know why this plane is landing, you know why this other one is taking off, because you have a perspective on what's happening. And what John gets 
is a perspective on all of human history. And this is what he learns. He learns that God is the creator of heaven and earth. God sits on his throne. God is worthy to be praised by angels and by humans and by all of creation. And he learns that God does have a plan to restore humans to himself. So humans have taken it upon themselves to deny their status as kings and as sons and daughters and to reject his rule over their life. But he says, I am going to call you back to myself, and I have a plan to do so, to redeem you and to renew you. And what John sees is this renewal and this restoration centers on Jesus Christ. It centers on the person of Jesus, who is described in this passage as a reigning king, a lion. He's described with that metaphor as a lion. But he's also a reigning king who conquers as a lamb. This lion who is victorious and who will redeem you does so by sacrificing himself for you. And the net effect of that sacrifice, the net effect of the coming of a lion who would come as a lamb is to transform you, to give you a renewed perspective. It's to give you a new status. It's to give you a new identity. And we see in this passage that he is going to transform you into priests and into kings. And here's the deal. Because Jesus wants to make you into a priest and make you into a king, and because he already has, for those of you who love and know and follow him, he is calling you to remember, to remind yourselves, to see yourselves again as priests and kings, to start acting like that, to to replace your limited human perspective with his eternal, divine, heavenly throne room perspective. And there's basically two points that I want to make today two points. One is, in the text, you will see that to renew your perspective, you have to see the one who has made you into priests and kings. We've got to see Jesus. We have to see Jesus more clearly and to know who he is and what he has done. And secondly, and I think this is the one that we kind of miss out on sometimes when reading this glorious passage, is that we need to see who we actually are now, what it means for us to be priests and kings to God. Okay, so let's start with point one. Take a look back at chapter five. You've got a little bit of four and all of five printed in your bulletin. We're going to focus mostly on chapter five. Okay, chapter five begins where any good story does with a conflict. So you have a little bit of exposition. You see there, um, God is seated at his throne. Look at verse 1. And he is holding in his right hand a scroll which contains his eternal plan. But this scroll doesn't simply declare his um, generic rule over all things. He's already sitting on the throne. It contains within it a specific plan for the redemption of all of humanity. And you know that because when they start to sing praise to the one who is worthy to unloosen the scroll, he is the one who has redeemed all of humankind. And if you read the rest of Revelation, you'll see this um, as well. And notice the urgency. Look at verses 2 through 4. Notice the urgency, the need for this thing to happen. There's a strong angel and he cries out, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? And there's an extensive search. This is like you might imagine um, somebody looking for money in their house, going through the the cupboards and going through the closet and looking under the bed and all over the place. They're looking uh, in heaven. 
They're looking on earth. They're looking under the earth. They're kind of frantic, but no one can be found who is worthy. And so John starts to cry. Take a look at that. He weeps because no one has been found. And he's weeping again because what is at stake for creation? Not what's at stake for the creator. God will continue to reign. God will remain on his throne. Angels will declare that he is holy and that he is holy and that he is holy whether or not he helps humankind out. But humanity is at stake if this scroll isn't opened, if redemption doesn't come to God's people. As one commentator writes, if the scroll is not opened, it means that there will be no protection for God's children in the hour of bitter trial. There will be no judgments upon a persecuting world, no ultimate triumph for believers, no new heavens, no new earth, no future inheritance. The fate of humanity rests in the balance. But there's really good news in the next verse. You don't have to go very far. In the throne room, there is one who is worthy to open the scroll. Take a look at verse 5. One of the elders tells John, stop crying, weep no more, weep not, look up. There is someone who can accomplish God's purposes. And who is he? Who is this one who can accomplish God's purposes? First of all, he is a lion. The elder calls him a lion. And that makes sense because lions are, uh, they are creatures who have power. They are animals who have authority and control, who can defeat and conquer all others who are around them. And both in the ancient Near Eastern world and in our world today, we think of them in this way as powerful. They are kings. They're the king of all animals. Jesus is a lion. Jesus is a king. But this is not just any lion. It's not just any king. Take a look. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah of the root of David. This is the one that takes us all the way back to Genesis 49. It takes us all the way back to 2 Samuel 7. It takes us all the way back to all of the expectations that every Jew had throughout the entire Old Testament, through the exile, through Roman conquest and domination, for one who would come, who would free them from foreign oppression, who would free them from the burden of a government oppressing them and taxing them. Somebody who could come, a king who could come and take the, take the Roman Empire down. That's what they were looking for. Someone who had that kind of power and someone who had that kind of authority. And indeed, Jesus is the one who comes and has that kind of authority. He is the one who comes to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Like another way of thinking about this is they need a champion. They need a trailblazer. They need someone to go into the wilderness for them. And you yourselves need someone who can face the wilderness and the darkness for you. And it says in verse five, he has conquered. He has conquered. And I think that that is intentionally open-ended. I think it's intentionally, um, not ambiguous isn't the right word, just open-ended. They don't list the specific things. Why not? Because what Jesus has conquered as a lion and as a king is every single thing that needs to be conquered. Every single thing that needs to be conquered. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has conquered hell. He has conquered exile. He has conquered the fear of death. He can sit on God's throne. Have you noticed we can have a whole sermon that just talks about the fact that this lamb 
who is a human, sits on God's throne. He has his power. He has his authority. He has God's spirit, if you look in verse 6. And these are the things that the Old Testament saints only had briefly. They only had access at one time or another, or they only had the spirit or possessed it at one time or another. But here and now, in verse 7, he comes and he went and he takes the scroll. It says he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne he can accomplish God's saving purpose in the world. Now, this is kind of a serious point, but as I was preparing for this sermon and as I was preparing again last night and thinking through um, what it means to kind of unlock things and be worthy to do something, you know, it's hard to get our minds around scrolls. So what they're probably talking about is you would have, you know, some kind of a scroll that has writing. It says it's on the inside and back, and then there would be these seals that are stamped into it, and you have to open or break off all seven to open it up and and, and read it. We don't have many scrolls at my house, but we do have we. We we play a lot of it, (laughs) at least especially my son Aiden and my son Stephen, and sometimes I'll get in there too. And the thing I kept thinking about when I was thinking about who is worthy or who can open or who can unlock the throne is, is Mario Kart. You'll have to forgive me for a minute as I explain why. What I've noticed is that designers of these Nintendo games now have gotten really smart. And what you have to do, for those of you who are game players, in order to get to another level, you have to unlock the previous level. Isn't that right? So if you if you want a cooler car, you have to beat the race with the, with the kind of boring car. If you want a cooler character, you have to beat the level with, you know, kind of a boring character. And you have to open and unlock the next level. And you have to open and unlock the next level. And that takes someone who has a skill set that I don't have... <laughs> I'm terrible. Like, I'm always falling off the side of a mountain or another side of a mountain or into water or whatever. But my son, he is our champion and trailblazer at Mario Kart. He can beat every level. He has unlocked every car and every character and everything that's possible. I think there now are like 475,000 levels, and he's on 475,001. He can do the things that I cannot do to open and unlock the next level of Mario Kart. And in a similar way, Jesus Christ, I know it's a stretch. You've got you to hang with me. It's a stretch. We needed an illustration in there. He can do what you cannot do. He can do what you cannot do. And what that means, there's actually a practical application here. That means that you have to reconsider how you think about yourself. Because a lot of times we go around thinking, I can do it. I am able. I am worthy. That's all right. I got this one. No problem. I can, ta- I, I can handle it. But you aren't by nature a conqueror. And most of you probably spend a lot of your life feeling the way I feel when I'm playing Mario Kart, <laughs> which is ready to take the controller and throw it at the, at the TV. It's ready to throw it down and walk out and say, fine, Aiden, you do it, or just take the controller and hand it over to him to do. You may feel conquered or defeated by a host of things, by a host of things. You may feel defeated by your own selfishness. You may feel defeated by your anger. You may feel defeated by sexual lust that returns again and again and again, no matter how how many times you try to get rid of it. You may be defeated by depression. You may be defeated by loneliness. You may be defeated by fear. You need the one who can conquer these things. You have to see Jesus who can do what you cannot do. You need a king to conquer them and set you free as you are found in him. You need a king. 
But here's what's amazing about this passage. Jesus is not only a king, he is also described as a lamb. And the most unexpected thing happens. I mean, this is wild stuff. Take a look back at verse 6. And what you'll see is, basically, the elder says there is a king. It's the Lion of Judah. And so, basically, imagine John. He hears this voice. And he's thinking, okay, great, the line of Judah, the conquering one. And then he kind of turns, expecting to see this lion. But instead of the lion, he sees a lamb. And that should be shocking. That should be surprising. That should be something that we don't expect. Because a lamb is the opposite of what It's like the anti-lion. You know, lions are powerful. Lambs, not powerful. Lions have authority and control. Lambs are there to be controlled, to be sacrificed, to be slaughtered for someone else and on someone else's behalf. And I think the problem here, I think I genuinely think the problem is that we're too used to thinking of Jesus as a lamb. We've already got that in our heads because of one too many bad greeting cards at Christmas. We think of Jesus as the lamb and you've got to stop thinking of Jesus as a lamb so that you can return to seeing him as a lamb in a new way. Listen, lambs don't belong on thrones. Lambs are not supposed to be in charge of things. They're not supposed to be conquering things. Let me, let me give you an illustration that may make this clear. Um, most military units will have badges or insignias that represent the unit that they're in. So you might have a brigade that is the 3rd Armored Division, but we're also the, the Bulldog Brigade. Or they might become the um, Eagle Brigade, or they might be the, the company of the... You, you, do you see what I'm saying? They pick all these animals that are fierce and ferocious. So you might have a poisonous snake, you might have a lion, you might have a ram. You have something that can control or conquer. But imagine, imagine a Marine Corps unit. Marine Corps unit who says, we're the unit of the lamb. We're the lamb's brigade. That doesn't make any sense. It should, you should laugh a little. It should offend your sensibilities. If there's anybody who has been in the Marines, they're already kind of like getting up ready to beat somebody down over it. And it would have worked in the same way in the Roman Empire because they held as powerful the same things that we consider powerful. But in Revelation, here's what you get. You get conventional images of military strength turned upside down. They're turned on their heads. The army of God, and read the rest of Revelation, make no mistake, this is an army. The army of God has as its commanding officer a lamb. That means it is the lamb that fights. It is the lamb that conquers. It is the lamb that judges. It is the lamb that defeats and destroys. But he does so by humbling himself. By submitting himself to the Father's will, by becoming poor, by becoming a human, by taking on himself your sin and your shame, he, this glorious king, becomes a servant. This is, think of it, this is like the greatest, most unexpected, most paradoxical moment in human history is when the king of glory becomes a lamb who was slain tried and executed as a common criminal on a brutal cross for you to pour out his grace for you and to demolish and to tear away all of your pride, all of your thinking that I can do it myself. I can do it by myself. The lion conquers by becoming a lamb. He conquers by becoming a lamb. 
And what's doubly amazing about this, if you haven't picked up on it yet, what's like profoundly amazing about this is that that's in the heavenly scene. You know, I think some of us, especially those of you who have been Christians for years, may be tempted to think that in eternity, in heaven, we can do away with that whole cross thing. Those, those scars on his hands will be gone. They will be erased. Yes, then he is risen. He will be a triumphant and conquering one. But no, on the contrary, in the closest to heaven view that you can get from the divine throne room, you see a lamb who was always slain. That means to relate to him now, you relate to him by the power of what he has done for you. By virtue of those scars, by virtue of those nails, he intercedes for you. He intercedes for you. You never move beyond coming to, to coming to God the Father through the person of Jesus Christ on account of what he has done for you. Let us go there and bow there and worship there and praise him there, even from this you know, apocalyptic perspective. The lamb is always the lamb who was slain. Jesus is always the lamb who was slain. And that also means we've got to reconfigure our expectations. You have to reconfigure your expectations because you're following a God who suffered and who died. That means he will take you through suffering. He will take you into pain. He will take you and he's calling you to your, to, to himself. But sometimes we want bigger, we want better, we want flashier and we're measuring things by human standards. But this God never works the way you expect him to. I mean, record the history of the last year at Liberty. (laughs) And I've got kind of an insider's track because I've watched from the inside. And it's just been, no, I didn't expect you to work that way. I didn't think that that was going to happen. You can't believe that, what, he's where, who? I mean, it was like he's just molding and shaping and moving. And you're like, no, no, I would have done it a different way. Something else would have happened. But Jesus is saying, I am constantly working in unexpected ways for your good and for your benefit. And that means he's walking with you on a path of suffering. He is walking through you on a path of sacrifice. And if he's creating you into a priest king, that means that you too conquer through sacrifice, through giving yourself away, through opening yourself up, because you are going to look like the lion who is also a lamb. You're going to look like the lion who's also a lamb. Okay, good. Let's look at the second point. The second point is this, that he is transforming you into priests and kings. And um, so we can't forget about the motive. We can't forget about the purpose. We can't forget about why this lion lamb came to suffer and die for us. It is to lift you out of the mess and out of the sin and out of the misery and to become kings and priests. And notice where, where I am here is especially in verse... Um, Verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, this is what you did, you ransomed people for God. And it's from every tribe and language and people and nation, and that means that it's by grace. Again, it's not something that you could have done. You're not in or being invited because of your economic status. You're not in or being invited because of your education or because of who your parents are or because of what your race is. It is by grace It is by grace that he is inviting you to participate with him. And then he says, this is what I'm doing in verse 10. As they pray, they say, you have made them a kingdom of priests, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we have to look at two things. What are priests like and what are kings like? 
priests throughout the Old Testament. They are chosen by God. They are called by him. They are anointed. That means they have gifts and they have blessings. They have access to God. And then they are called to serve him in his temple on behalf of the people. So I basically want you to think of two things. One, they've been given many things, access to God, chosen status, special relationship to him. And then what they do is they go around representing the people to God, coming to the people and saying, we are here to help you find your way to God, to make a way to, so that you have access to him. So they're standing on behalf of the people in his presence. Okay. But the question is this, what would it mean? What would it mean if all of God's people have become the priests, okay? Hang with me for a second. It would mean a lot of things. I mean, by implication, it would mean that you have a job to do. God is calling you to do a job, that you are an important member of his community. It's not only sort of the professional paid staff or preachers or pastors that that are called. You too are called. But that's not even what I'm interested in today. More importantly, it means if you are the priests then the people that you are serving is everybody else out there. You get it? It's, it's all of humanity, right? You have, been char- you have been given the gifts of a priest. You've been given access to the Father through Jesus Christ. You have been called. You have been chosen. You have been elected. You have been redeemed. You have been given life and peace. Why? So that you can find other people who do not know him, others who are not near him, and invite them in and bring them in and represent God to them. To be priests for God means to reach out to all humanity and bring them into God's presence. Let me give you a couple examples of just creative ways that this could look. Um, I have one friend who's a pastor, and he goes to the same diner um, like every Monday morning. And what he does is he's developed a relationship with all of the wait staff that's there. And he started not only talking to them, but also praying for them. Hey, what's going on? And, oh, you're divorced. Well, let me help you with that. And let me pray for you and hear about it. How's your son doing? Let me hear about this and think about that. And um, he developed this habit of just meeting them, knowing them, praying for them. And one day he walked into the, um, to the restaurant and sat down with a friend of his and overheard one of the waitresses. And the waitress said to another customer, hey, see that guy right there? That's my pastor. But the, the waitress had never darkened a church door. You see what I mean? She wouldn't go to church on Sunday morning. Uh, she wasn't concerned about it or interested in that. What did he do? He took the graces and the gifts of God that he had given him, and he put them out there into the diner, out there into the world, out there into the workplace. He stood as a representative on behalf of God. Let me give you another example. When I worked at the thrift store, uh, I, worked at, I, wor- I used to work at a thrift store, for those of you who don't know, New Life Thrift Store in Glenside. And... Um, the thrift store had all of these avenues out into the community so that when there was hurting or pain in the community, people called the thrift store. So if the high school had a kid who needed community service hours, they would call the thrift store. Hey, can you help him work? And if the hospital had a woman who had just given birth and was moving into a new apartment and needed some furniture, hey, can you help us get some furniture? And, you know, the, the social service agencies, everybody called the thrift store. And I always used to think when I was working there, what if they thought that way about the church? What if the church, what if Liberty Church was the first place people thought of going to get the help that they need and where they would receive from Jesus Christ and from God himself? Do you see, then the church would be a kingdom of priests in the community. 
It will be a kingdom of priests acting on God's behalf to bring others to him. And we have to think about ways um, that we can transform the church so that we'll be doing that. Okay. Secondly, kings are just like priests. So we don't have to go into really big detail here. The point is kings are also ones who are chosen. They are ones who are anointed. They are ones who have been given much. And they're expected to rule on God's behalf and to give those things away. They're expected to exercise God's authority. And think of it, a kingdom of priests would be a community that was serving, just like I said, the community that's around it, in a way that advances God's kingdom, in a way that brings forth glory to him, in a way that gathers worshipers to himself. So keep asking yourself, what would it look like if liberty became a kingdom of priests? You may even say, how are we already? And there are some ways that you are. But start to brainstorm and think creatively. How can we become more like a kingdom of priests? How can we be the people that we already are? And that's the same thing that, that God is calling Israel in Exodus 19. He says, you guys are a kingdom of priests. And it's the same thing that Peter says in 1 Peter. He says, you are uh, a royal priesthood. And so you have to keep asking, are we acting like kings? Have we remembered that we're kings? Are we acting like priests? Have we remembered that we are priests? And you ask yourself, how do you do that? And I actually think the rest of the passage explains how. Usually we think of the rest of the passage as a litany of praise and a, a picture of what heaven would be like. But I actually think it's an answer to the question, what does it mean to give yourselves away as priests and kings to God? Take a look. Take a look. There's basically two groups of people. The living creatures and the angels, they start praising. And in verse 12, they say, Worthy is the Lamb. He's to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. And then in verse 13, creation responds back. And they say, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. Amen. You see... Here's what I want you to get a picture of. Jesus, in redeeming you and calling you to himself, is giving you his blessing and his honor and his glory and his wealth and his wisdom and his power. And then he's asking you to give it back to him through praise. But it can't just be something that you say. It can't just be something that you sing about. This is, yes, a glorious vision of future praise and worship, but it's more than that. He is asking you to think of how to give yourself away, to take your power and your strength and your wealth and to turn them over to him and to use them for for his glory. That means two things briefly. One, it reminds us that all of life is worship, something that we say often at Liberty. It means he's given you gifts and strengths to use for his glory. So if you're good at playing soccer or you're good at accounting or you're good at filmmaking or you're good at making coffee or whatever the case may be, taking care of children, do those things for his glory. The lamb on the throne is worthy. Find ways to turn those into worship, avenues of worship for him because he has created you in that way. But secondly, it also means there are times and places when we have to take the blessings and gifts that he has given us and hand them away, where we have to give them away. And you may have to give him your honor by taking on the world's shame. And that may mean going out to the least and to the lost. That means working with, it may mean for you working with the homeless. It may mean sitting by the bedside of someone who is elderly. It may mean... 
entering into a place that looks dark and broken and taking some of that brokenness and shame upon yourself to bring redemption and restoration and reconciliation there. And he may be asking you to give your glory away, and that means by giving somebody else a chance to serve, giving somebody else credit for something that you did. I mean, imagine that. What if we were all just busy finding other people who could do the things that we're doing, training them, equipping them, raising them, and setting them free, and then just kind of getting out of the way and saying, yeah, he did it. That was great. Praise God. Praise God. Um, We would be a community of those who are giving away our glory. And he may be calling you to give your wealth away, whether it's supporting church planting or missions or missionaries or whatever it is. He may be asking you to do these things, not just to sing about them, not just to speak about them. And that sort of worship hurts. But if it hurts, it's because you're a priest king who looks like a lion lamb. You have become someone who you're acting like the person you already are. If, if you want to put it that way, you have become someone who is imitating the lion lamb, who is empowered by the lion lamb, who is conquering through suffering. And I'm reminded of Paul's motto, the motto for the whole Christian life, strength in weakness. His strength has come in your weakness, in your submission to him, and in your resting in who he is and what he does. And it certainly means thousands of tiny little deaths every day, but deaths for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom, and for the name of Jesus. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the lamb who was slain, that you are a conqueror, a conquering king who conquers in ways that we never would have thought of, that we never would have expected, that we never would have made up. You have bought us by your blood, and you actually are changing us into this community. And so we praise you for doing that. We praise you for the renewal that comes through worship. And we ask that you would help us, Lord, help us to give ourselves away to the community and our neighbors and our coworkers and all those who are around us. Let Liberty Church, I pray, be a kingdom of priests right here smack dab in the center of Philadelphia, in North Philadelphia, around Fairmont, and all these neighborhoods. Help us to find ourselves in you and remember who you've created us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.